What's up, everyone? This is Shiragam, and I want to welcome you to episode 51 of the Hashishin, brought to you by Rosin Evolution, who you can visit at rosinevolution.com. As always, thank you for tuning in. On today's episode, we get to hear from Andrew of Turk Fountain Genetics. We discuss a variety of topics, including how his interest in hash has developed into his current project, which aims to provide new flavors for the solventless community. He talks to us a bit about his culinary background and how that plays into making flavors and much more, so definitely stay tuned for it. Shout out to Zach Brown Glass for hooking up all our guests with the best ceiling carb caps in the game. You can grab them on Instagram at Zach Brown Glass or on his site, ZachBrownGlass.com. Shout out to every person that makes up our community on Patreon. Without their continued support, we would not be able to continue bringing you these episodes. So thank you again. If you would ever like to support the podcast, get access to early releases, additional interviews, and more, you can do so at patreon.com backslash thehashishin. That's thehashishinn through our Instagram bio at thehashishin or on our website, thehashishin.com. Also, a shout out to another big reason that we could keep the podcast rolling, our awesome sponsors, including our partners at Rosin Evolution, the best bags in the game, who again, you can visit at rosinevolution.com or on Instagram at rosinevolution100, where you'll find the best steel and hash, Rosin Evolution's trusty and affordable full mesh wash bags, as well as their tried and true rosin bags, trusted by hash makers all over the country, from small batch to commercial. So if you wash hash or you press rosin, Rosin Evolution has got you covered with an unmatched product and customer service. They're your one-stop shop for anything rosin. And to save an additional 5% while supporting the podcast, use our savings code, the letters THI, the number 710, that's THI710, saves you 5% at rosinevolution.com. Shout out to our sponsors, one of the true legacy glass brands, Toro Glass, who you can visit on their site, toroglassgallery.com, or on Instagram at toro underscore glass, where you'll find a range of high-end functional glass art from their beautifully designed and expertly made rigs and tubes to their grails, terp slurpers, and core reactors. No matter where you are in the world, whether you're looking for quartz or high-end glass art that focuses on high-end function and design, visit Toro at toroglassgallery.com or on their Instagram at toro underscore glass. Shout out to our homies and another of our new sponsors, Hashhead Outfitters, who you can visit at hashheadoutfitters.com or on Instagram at hashheadoutfitters. They make small batch, incredibly comfortable clothing for hash lovers. What I love is the quality of the material they use to make their gear. It feels amazing. It has a nice weight to it. They've been yielding some sick colorways. So if you love hash and you love comfort, then visit our homies, Hashhead Outfitters at hashitoutfitters.com to grab the gear that makes you feel extra cozy with that dab. Again, a shout out to Zach Brown Glass for hooking up our guests with my favorite carb cap. Check out his V2 series and beyond at zachbrownglass.com or on Instagram at zachbrownglass. I appreciate you listening and I hope that you enjoy the episode. Welcome to episode 51 of the Hashishin. I'm your host, Shiragam Amir. Today, I'm really excited to have Andrew of Turp Fountain Genetics based in Michigan. You can follow them on Instagram at Turp Fountain Genetics. You can find their genetics at RockyMountainHigh719.org. What's up, Andrew? I appreciate you coming on, man. How's it going, Shargam? Thanks for having me onto the show. Yeah, of course, dude. I have people hitting me up all the time asking me to have people on who are working with genetics, obviously in this sense, solventless or hash-based. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk. 
I'm really excited to talk to you about hash, genetics, seeds, but let's start with pollen. Did you ever imagine that cannabis pollen would become such an integral part of your creative outlet? Um, initially, probably not. When I first started, I, I mean, the males were definitely something I avoided. I mean, as time goes on, you know, I've saw value in the males, you know, obviously. Yeah, it's, it's an important part, you know, uh, learning how to keep it, learning how to uh, store it the best ways and, you know, collect it the best ways. It's a whole different material to learn how to manipulate. It handles different than rosin or anything else because, I mean, it handles a little bit like hash because it has a static charge, but it's really like light and whimsical compared to hash, which is more on the heavy side, you know. So someone actually told me recently that they felt like these episodes were getting to be almost like for advanced listeners. And I want to kind of pull it back a little bit. So let's just start with like, what is cannabis pollen? It's what the male plant produces to uh, be received by the pistils of the female plant to create seed. You know, it's basically uh, the male reproductive things that all plants give off to make seeds or most plants to some degree. So pretty much an integral part of plant reproduction in general. Like you said a little bit ago, you weren't really aware about what males did, particularly in regards to pollen in this case. What was your first experience taking pollen or having pollen or doing anything with pollen? There's like kind of like a general fear of pollen that is instilled in you when you're a grower, you know, like, you know, how volatile is pollen? You know, how easily does it spread around? You know, all those kinds of things. So I think there's a little bit of an avoidance wanting to get into that side of things. My first time, I just put a, a couple males, like a four by four tent in an extra bedroom, kept the door closed and just let them rip, turned off all the fans and just tried to be really careful with the door. And that was my first time making pollen, just seeing what happens. I don't know if you were growing within that same space, but did you come away like unscathed? I never opened up that door you know, at any point and then went into my grow room, like, you know, I'd go in there pretty much like buck ass naked, like, you know what I'm just go in there and check everything out. And then I'd come back out and jump back in, you know, jump into the shower without touching as little things as possible. And a lot of times too, like I'd keep like a, just like a spray bottle, a water bottle, like the doorknob and just kind of dust my feet off with that on the way out. And then just, you know, go right to the shower, try to get minimal, uh, pollen spreading. Cause it is easy to like spread it and knock stuff up, but it's also easy to avoid to an extent too. You know, it's something I'm still like continually learning. Yeah, I mean, you definitely want to just try to keep it as separate as possible. And as long as you don't have cross airflow and cross clothing contamination, like, you know, if you let your dog go into that room and then run around the rest of the house, that's going to be an issue. You know what I mean? And like, I definitely recommend like, you know, if you're going to do it in an extra bedroom, have like a carpet shampooer and stuff, because it only takes like a little bit of moisture to neutralize pollen, but you got to make sure you cover the surface. You know what I mean? We got a carpet shampooer and a lot of times too, like I'll kind of like just mist things down with like a super light mist, like a super fine mist out of like a pump spray too, to, you know, kind of neutralize things, help keep the spread minimal. So just to be clear, the purpose of these sprays or like water or whatnot is almost to suppress how far this pollen can reach or kind of bring it down per se? Yeah, that. And then another thing too is just keeping the initial like disturbance of the male plants to a minimal. Like you don't want to like 
shake the fuck out of them without, you know, having proper filtration and stuff like that, because that's when it can get out of hand too, you know, like then you have to, you know, really clean things down. So going back to those two males that you started with in the tent, did you select those males specifically or where did the desire come from to even have males at that point? Just a few different males I'd collected over a series of months and just kind of just wanted to see what they do. That was my first experience with pollen. So what came of that project after that? Like you successfully, I guess, pulled it off and you found ways to deal with the pollen better and not cross-contaminate. The first seeds I ever made weren't like super special, but then the first like intentional batch of seeds I ever made, like the first like I have a fucking idea and like I want to make it, that was the fucking pygasm. And that's where things, I don't know, really changed in my life. Just as far as my vision and my trajectory and everything else, it was like a real game changer for me in a lot of ways. Like I made, I went out to set, I set out with a vision with the pygasm and it like, it exceeded the vision. Like it was just something that was knocked way out of the park, was unlike anything I'd seen before. I mean, one of the things that kind of happened too with the pygasm is like, I intentionally made this cross and then I was washing like a buddy's garden. I ended up, contracting russets from the fucking wash. I didn't even like bring in one of his cuts to the washroom or something like that. I think I like brought in some to my house, like on my shoes or something just from the water. It spread into my grow from that. Cause like, I don't have any cuts from anybody. I've never taken in cuts from anybody. Even to this day, I still haven't taken in cuts from anybody. So, I mean, that was the vector at that time. So I'm not like an outdoor grower or anything. So that was my first experience with russets and like they fucked up my garden. You know, I only kept maybe two or three cuts from what I had at that time. And I lost every fucking thing in my entire garden, mostly from sulfur burn, because I was like trying to go so hard on it, like trying to get rid of the russets that I ended up killing a lot of my uh, younger plants and like the clone batches I had going and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, it's a learning experience, but you got to learn some way, you know. But anyway, what came of that situation was. I was able to uh, like start from square one basically and do a large hunt. And I was like so stoked about like my first thought out cross, which was the pygasm. I was just going to hunt that. So I had only a couple cuts or whatever. And I kept those like in that tent, like in that extra bedroom where I flowered those males before. I kept those just up there, kept the door closed. You know, I kept my eye on them for a really long time before I reintroduced them back to my population. You know, and I checked them with like microscopes and stuff. Anyway, I, I popped like 70 seeds of this pygasm to just restart my rooms. I had like a full room of males and a full room of females. And like I flowered those out. And that's where I found this red pygasm. And the red pygasm was like an outlier of the, uh, the pygasm stock that had like a pure synthetic red trait. And it has a red color to the nugs and leaves which kind of varies to like a purple on some batches, but a lot of batches, it's like real red, which is distinctive. Yeah, that's been my flagship, basically what I built the seed company off of. Like for my first releases, it's it's all been off of this red pygasm as a reversal to some of my other wash winners, you know, for my wash menu. That's basically how I've kickstarted the whole thing. And it was amazing too, because I started out with the Juicy Cubes, which is Z-Cube from uh, Brandon, third gen. I had like a one of those brown tubes from his first release at Emerald. I hunted through that and I found like a really special 
like very skittly plant and like pretty much just pure skittles. It's a little better structured than the regular skittles and it washes like four and a half percent. So it's pretty solid on that front. And I use that to make those juicy cubes. And amazingly, like without anybody even like trying, like growing my genetics or anything, like I sold out in uh, under three minutes on Rocky's website. Yeah, I mean, it, it really just blew my mind. That was like kind of the moment where I was like, you know, this could be more than just, you know, a hobby. It could be something going forward. You know what I mean? Like, so, you know, more of a trajectory and... It yeah, definitely like inspired me to work harder and come up with more ideas and keep moving, kind of pushing the box as far as the terpene profiles too. The Juicy Cubes itself has like a distinctive, it has a lot of hot berry terps from the pygasm. And then it has, you know, some of the Skittles, obviously. I've even heard like outliers of like peach terps and some of so just some different stuff other than that too, which is kind of interesting as well. But the keeper that I picked out of it had like like a 5% wash and it had like a red Skittles kind of profile to it, like a real pink, like red interior nug color, like that had like a real white resin on the outside, like just super cool, like looking nugs. I think I've got a, a, some pictures of them on my Instagram. Yeah, people have had a lot of success with that one. Frosty won second place at Dabadoo in Spain with the Juicy Cubes. He did pretty well at Ego Clash. I don't think he placed, but he was definitely had an impressionable jar. I think it was number six was his Juicy Cubes entry. Anyway, I'll, you have anything to, to interject with? Yeah, tons of questions, man. Let's start off with what is the cross on the original Pygasm? The original Pygasm was this Great Pie BXF2. It was like an outlier phenotype of it that had like a really bright, like a berry chirp, like a synthetic, almost like a white owl kind of chirp is what I would describe it as. You know, it wasn't like the typical, like kind of more tootsie-ish kind of grape pie chirps that can come from some of the other grape pie work. This was like super, it was super bright, like super impactful, just pure berry, almost like an e-liquid. That plant like really inspired me and like I wanted to cross something to it that would accentuate the hot fruit and hot berry profile. At the time, I was running it for probably like my fourth time or fifth time or so. And I was also running some Gak Melon that I got from Ego Clash. And I kind of, I got like a super hookup on it from my buddy Arun. He, uh, a Land Race Indian is or Instagram. He hooked me up with the Gak Melon there. It wasn't like out, it wasn't something they were selling like eagerly there. And he got, I got, I got hooked up under the table on it. So I was hunting that out and there was a male that was like really sticking out to me. Just had like a hot watermelon fruit, like aroma coming off it. And it had, you know, a little bit of resin growing on the little sugar leaves between the uh, male flowers and stuff like that. Yeah, this is probably a pretty good one to hit with it. So I kind of took a shot in the dark a little bit and, you know, ran it out. I put it in a tent. It was just, I only made the one cross with it. Like I just... You know, I had a vision for it and I put it in a tent just with the one plant. Yeah, the rest is history. That was it. And then, like I said, the russet incident happened shortly after and it allowed me to do a big hunt of it and find some really standout phenotypes. So now that you've developed your craft a little more, what are you looking for in males outside of an aroma? And 
is a strong aroma like the one you mentioned in the one that you selected, common trait? It depends. Like certain males will exhibit more traits than others. Others will show less. And then like you'll just have to cross them in and see what traits they create. You know what I mean? Like some of them don't aren't as easy to read. The Gak Melon Fino just happened to have like some resin on it to where I was able to get a reading of like what I think would be more true to the profile versus like a stem rub. Now you talked about having a vision for creating the piegasm and you told me in our private conversation that one of the things you enjoy the most is creating things and in this case genetics that people are now able to grow all over the place and you get that feedback and you said that that's one of the things that you most love about doing this work. I really do enjoy that part. I mean, that's probably the most gratifying thing for me is, you know, waking up to somebody that just found a bomber Fino and just being able to kind of read the stoke on them, you know, is really gratifying. It's kind of like being able to like give somebody a gift in a way, you know, I really aim to like, not just like try to sell people seeds, but to try to sell people, you know, the strain itself too, you know, and make sure that people can find a winner in each pack. It's important to me. If you're somebody that, you know, you strike out on a pack of mine, I definitely want to hear from you in a respectful way because I want to help you. Like, I want to see people do good with my work and ultimately just succeed, you know? Going back to the vision, though, how do you create flavors through cannabis genetics? How do you envision them and how do you build them? Well, getting to know, like, for me, like, I'm like, I got like a culinary background, so I kind of think of my strains like my ingredients and a line, like getting to know the line itself is part of getting to learn the ingredient and then being able to select a winner from that line to make crosses with is kind of pushing the direction of the flavor profile you want to achieve with that ingredient. Now you brought up the idea of being intentional. And at the beginning, you said that the piegasm was your first real concentrated breeding project. You've mentioned to me that you see your work almost as a two-part thing. One is this intentional reading, and then there's the other part that's more like the chucking part. What do you mean by that, and what are the differences between those two processes? Well, for me, like, I kind of have, like, two categories in my work, because first of all, like, I try to, so, like, first of all, I try to make everything a second-generation breeding project, meaning I'm breeding something to you know, already making a cross and then collecting pollen from that cross to then go on to make other crosses with to sell to the public. So it's something that I can have more control of because I get more experience with the ingredients that I'm working with that way. You know, I can control more ends of my creation doing it that way. But also, I think it's a good way too to, you know, to respect some of the guys that have come before me too, because I'm not just trying to take a mail from somebody else's work and then make a whole menu out of it to sell to the public. I kind of view that as somebody else's hard work, you know, and if they want to line work it, they can. But to me, like if I'm going to take one of their mails and throw it to something like that's a shucking project because I don't really plan to sell it to the public. I'm more just kind of flowering out a mail that's not of my gear to see what happens and to see what, what can come of it to other plants. And that usually is determined by finding something that, you know, I'm stoked about in the female stock first, you know, beforehand. Sometimes I'll have, there'll be a little bit of anticipation with certain packs of seeds, you know, like certain, 
you know, expectations or whatever, you know, or something that I spend a lot of money on in an auction or whatever, I'll, you know, hold males of that. And then I'll see how the females are before I even bother trying to flower out the males. Get to know the ingredients, you know. On the breeding front, you mentioned, speaking of males and females, that you feel like it's more of getting to know the parents really well. And we talked about the interesting dynamic of working that through the male mostly, and then working that through multiple different types of varieties of females and seeing how those characteristics are translating from the male into the females and how they carry over. At this point, what are some of the characteristics that you're looking for to make genetics that are specifically for, for example, water hash? Well, I'm looking for vigor, you know, and I'm looking for a certain amount of traits that are passed on to the offspring. A lot of times I'm testing out more than one male on a sample stock of something, a sample female to multiple different males, because the males are just harder to read. So, I mean, funny thing about that is, like I was telling you, when I did that first big pygasm hunt, I separated a big room of males. It was like my biggest male hunt ever. Like, I think I had like 30 or so males. I picked a male out and I was like so stoked about this male. And, you know, I flowered out the whole room and everything to select it. You know, it was a good looking male, had terps, you know, all the things that I was looking for at that time. But I crossed it and it didn't do what I wanted it to do. And I chopped down all the other males. I didn't have, you know, any other options at that point. So I kind of boxed myself out. I ended up putting off my initial seed drop for like a year because of that whole thing. I wasn't satisfied with the outcome of that male because before I was even like really trying to like publicize my seeds, I was kind of just trying to make genetics competitively just from a hash making aspect. I kind of had the idea to do like a seed drop or two just uh, for fun kind of thing. And then uh, Ginger Larf and uh, Harry Palms had been following me on my hash profile for quite a few years. And they'd been talking to Rocky about some of the projects I've been working on and stuff and some of the stuff they've been seeing on my Instagram story. I don't remember who hit up who first, but I got in touch with Rocky and started to plan out drops. And I had a drop planned because I ran a bunch of this, my first berry fizz, which is the papaya BX cross to pygasm. I made it with a male first and it just didn't hit the marks that I was exactly looking for. So I kind of pulled the plug on it because we were going to try to release that just kind of as like a see what happens kind of thing. Yeah, I wasn't satisfied. So yeah, I pulled the plug and it ended up being like eight months later, a year later or something. And we finally put out the first drop, the Juicy Cubes, which I did with the Red Pygasm Pheno reversal. So it was feminized seeds. I mean, they hit the mark. I mean, it's almost a perfect cross, I would say, like it does what it's supposed to do. You know, you get the berry and you get the skittle and that you get them in the same plant too. Like sometimes you got to hunt a little bit more for the washer on this cross because it does have some of the skittles resin traits coming through on some of the offspring, but there's a lot of really solid washers. I think Frosty, feeling Frosty hash, he was telling me that he has like 7% on his or something like that. Mine's only like a five, but I don't know if anything's possible, you know, I mean, the pygasm itself, the red pygasm does wash like seven and the Z cube can do anywhere from like three and a half to like four and a half, just depending on the round and the pulls. And the red pygasm you mentioned as being an outlier to the pygasm hunt, correct? Yeah, because like the pygasm in general, like 
there's a lot of like uh, great profiled plants and like, you know, some of the more typical profiled like grape pie, like kind of terps you would expect. But then there's some like really crazy outliers like this Pygasm 32 pheno I have is like a, uh, I call it the berry marmalade because it has like, there wasn't any other like cross that was even anything remotely to this. It's almost like some people smell it and like are like, oh, like Tropicana cookies, but it's got like a like a berry citrus, like almost like a little bit of like a sandalwood soap kind of thing going on. Like it's really like exotic, just super out there and like not what you would expect from the cross. That was like the other outlier I got. That and the red, the red cut were the two outliers. In regards to that, how important do you think it is to run a large population, even though you said for example, when you sell someone a pack of seeds, you want them to find something within those 10 to 12 seeds, let's call it. I mean, it just depends on the seed stock. You know what I mean? Certain seeds, like you have to hunt more to find a winner of. And certain stuff, you'll find one more eagerly just by popping a few seeds. I mean, I know like a lot of uh, hairy palms work with like Oni way back in the day. Some of the original bangers, like from the papaya line and stuff. I mean, I remember people were finding winners out of popping three or four or five seeds, you know? So that was something that I definitely kind of strive for as far as the results in my fem packs, you know? I think I hit the nail on the head. I mean, my one buddy, uh, Cannabinoid on Instagram, he was, I think he just hunted out one seed and he found a really stoke-worthy uh, heavy washing plant with the profile that he was after. So I think that was like probably like the craziest example. I'm sure there's other people that have only popped one seed, but he was the one who told me about it. You told me that you see these outliers being almost like gateways from, like you said, their parents. Can you expand on that a little more? Yeah, I mean, I think like the outlier profiles are what distinguish like probably some of the best cuts there is out there, you know what I mean? Like you find something that, you know, breaks outside of the expectation of what you saw from the parents, like something new that's created between the two things. And I think that's technically what an outlier is, you know, it's not the average offspring. It's something special, you know, that's far and fewer and unique. You know what I mean? Yeah. You told me that when they do come about, they're pretty easy to spot. For sure. I mean, I overlooked the red pygasm at first because it almost has like these like ugly looking, almost like sour diesel almost kind of nugs. But when it came to like chop time, when I came across the red, I was like, holy shit, like it finished up crazy. And just as far as like a resin per square foot basis or anything like that, like it's it's my heaviest yielding like plant for the amount of soil it takes up and the amount of area it takes up. You know what I mean? It's my best yielding plant and it's my favorite terps too in my garden. And how would you describe those terps? Pure like synthetic red. People get like some like pie backgrounds, but it's it's pretty berry forward. Like it's very berry. Like some people get cherry. Some people get, I've even heard people say grape and stuff, but like, I mean, everybody's, the way they discern the profile is a little different. But to me, I get like a really hot, like, red berry like red aspect and i get a lot of reports of people seeing like raspberry and cherry and stuff like that and the crosses from the red pygasm so i think that it's a pretty good description is that part of what basically what you're into is introducing these maybe new array of flavors within the solventless world specifically 
Um, I'm trying. I mean, you know, I think that it's hard to say like what is exactly a new profile because, you know, there's so many people growing and doing things. And, you know, I, I try to go with stuff that's new for me. And, you know, I hope that it'll be new for other people too. And it does, it does come across that way for a lot of people. So when I competed in Ego Clash, one of the guys like by the table, like he was like, oh, that's like almost like a pineapple turp when he got to my jar. And I was like, what? But I don't know. It's just the way that it comes across the palate is different. It's definitely like that hot fruit, like, you know, high chew kind of turp almost, but it's, yeah, it's distinctive for sure. Cool. Well, you down for a smoke break? Yep, smoke break. Awesome. Shout out to our sponsors, one of the true legacy glass brands, Toro Glass, who you can visit at toroglassgallery.com or on Instagram at toro underscore glass, where they've continued innovating functional glass art for over the last 20 years through the vision and creativity of artist JP Toro. JP has been exploring his passion for cannabis, glass, and function over the last two decades to be at a point where his designs are now taking dabbing to a whole new level for all of us. He's introduced us to the concept of the slurper through his desire and curiosity to explore a different airflow concept for quartz. He comes up with things that look awesome that are equally as awesome and function like his jet cyclers, which come in a range of styles to exploring exciting colorways on a variety of their rigs and pipes, including a recent favorite of mine, the Crayon Yellow Jet Perk. So whether you're looking for quartz or high-end glass art that focuses on high-end function and design, visit Toro, who stays at the forefront of innovation at toroglassgallery.com or on their Instagram at toro underscore glass. I appreciate you listening. Now back to the episode. So we haven't talked about the fact much that you started really more hash making, which you brought up a little earlier, but we didn't dive into. Tell us what got you into hash and how you started making hash. What got me going on hash was back in the Midwest in red state days, probably like 2010, 2011. I got like my first taste of like, Good hash from like out west, like good bubble hash and stuff. You know, we had some hash like around before that, but then we got this like really good like melty bubble hash from California. I mean, even to today's standards, it wasn't like something we were dropping on a banger, but it was really, that's what we wanted to smoke. You know what I mean? After we tried it, we were like, you know, we need to get more of that. After several attempts of not being able to secure it, we got some bubble bags, you know, started washing some just like old school, you know, like put it in the pipe and smoke it kind of hash, you know, just old school cured bubble hash, stuff like that, you know, it'd come out like tan and sandy or, you know, the really good shit would come out like, you know, a little more black and greasy, but that didn't happen as often. We usually had a lot of the more tanner shit from what the stuff we were getting at that time. Simultaneously, we started to see some of the videos and stuff on like YouTube of people uh, open blasting and shit. So we started doing that, you know, I think my first time I did it, I was like either 16 or 17. And I went over to one of my buddy's house. We like built like a blast tube out of like an old like Gatorade bottle. And we put cheesecloth on the end of it, dude. And we got, we had his aunt go like pick us up, like, cause we weren't 18 or whatever. So like we had to have somebody go pick up the, the butane for us. So we got like all these like Zippo, like lighter fluid 
cans of butane and we fucking just straight up just blasted it through the Gatorade bottle into like a stainless steel uh, bowl. And then we fucking, we took his aunt's hair dryer and we like blew that shit off, dude. Yeah, I mean, that was that was my first time ever making like, you know, like a dabable oil. My buddy's uncle at the time, he he was like, oh, we, we I know how to smoke this. He was putting the knives on the stove and shit. We were like, you know, smoking our first dab off of like a hot knife. From there, we went and got like some rigs with like some boro nails and shit. Like those ones that like, You'd fucking have to just heat up like a, a tiny little bit, you know, like otherwise it'd fucking explode and like fucking, you know, burst all over the room. And then the titanium nail. I mean, you guys know, I mean, the guy, the people who have been through it, you know, no. If you lived in a time where a domeless titanium nail was tech, I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, after that, I kind of like cut back on all that stuff when I started having some health issues. Just like really bad, like stomach acid issues, just like, you know, the kind that just keep you up through the night and persist through the day. You know, I was like eating like a bottle of Tums a week kind of thing. I was seeing like a gastrologist and stuff and got my stomach scoped. You know, I went through the whole nine yards and I ended up just quitting smoking blunts and smoking uh, BHO. One of my buddies at the time had started getting his hands on some pressed keef rosins and like, you know, just some different kinds of like rosin and stuff. I started just kind of like easing off of everything else and smoking, you know, like the dabable solventless stuff. From there, it was kind of an evolution to want to procure that myself too, like like before, because the supply wasn't as consistent. So yeah, I mean, that's pretty much what pushed me to live washing. I kind of made that move when I moved um, Colorado in early 2016. That's when I I started my first like real grow. I went down to 14er and I got a bunch of seeds like back when they were still selling seeds. I popped them in my tent. Yeah, that was like my first, some of my first live washes. I had like a pack of like, I think like junior mints from archive or something like that. I bought a stand up freezer, trimmed up all the nugs and threw them in there, washed them and had pretty decent results. And like by the time I got to my second or third time just like live washing, it was starting to catch the attention of some of my buddies and stuff where they were like, yo, let me bring over a cooler. Why don't you make some hash for me or whatever? I'll give you a little bit. So yeah, that started. I got to get a lot of experience through a lot of friends in Colorado that let me work with their material and, you know, trusted me early on. I got to see a lot of different strains and, you know, it really broadened my horizons strain wise and just experience wise, just beyond being able to wash what I could grow out of the tents in the townhome I was living in at the time. I actually started, I was like running like, like a mini little, like, you know, wash business for my friends and stuff, just helping them wash their shit in my little townhome. It's kind of funny. I set up like a uh, ice fishing tent in the basement with like an AC hooked up to the inside of it and like venting out through the window well. Yeah, I had to haul every bucket of water up and down the fucking stairs. Like every bucket. Like you just all like it was it was a fun time. And then like I had to get rid of like all the wash water. At first I was like pouring it out like the back the town home, like uh into the little mini backyard that was you know, maybe like four foot by, you know, twenty-four foot or whatever, and it started to stink. So I had to just do even more work and like we'll scoop all the water into the kitchen sink, you know what I mean? To like get it down into the plumbing so it didn't fucking make the outside reek even more than just the wash air or whatever. 
exhausting, you know, probably wasn't great. And it's like a major public intersection for the town behind <laughs> everything. <laughs> Nothing ever happened, like, but nobody ever knocked on my door or anything about it. So I was pretty lucky. Yeah, that's definitely a good thing, but that's a pretty funny story, dude. Going back to when you first started smoking hash, what was your appeal to smoking hash versus smoking buds or flour at that time? So basically, you know, I was a kid. I was living with my parents. I didn't want to have, you know, go outside to like smoke all the time. So I like started smoking dabs and shit in the bathroom, blowing them up through the vent. You know, years later, you know, my dad was like, you know, I could smell it the whole time, but I didn't. I thought I was being sneaky. (laughs) Just to clarify, do you feel like the cannabis had to do with the health issues that you mentioned and that's why you had stopped? I mean, I've always been drawn to cannabis because I got like super bad ADHD. You can't tell by the way I ramble, but yeah, I, I mean, that's what drew me to cannabis. And then the health issues pushed me more to the solventless lifestyle, I would say. So a couple of questions. One, did your health resolve? And then two, by smoking solventless products, has that not been an issue for you going forward? I haven't had any problems. Dude, my stomach issues disappeared. I mean, I meant to get to that punchline, but yeah, I mean, my stomach issues disappeared. I mean, I pretty much only smoke rosin. I smoke occasional joints, but I only smoke rosin. So that's part of my drive to wash everything and you know, run it through the process. It's, I wouldn't say unique to my brand, but it's the approach of my brand. You know what I mean? The solvent side. I have to ask, do you smoke hash as well or is it strictly rosin? I smoke full melt hash. Yep, I do. You know, I usually always have some in the freezer. I, whenever I have like, you know, anything more than a thousand grams, I always throw in some upper micron screens, but that's kind of become like, more of a privilege lately because I'm so driven to use my space for pheno hunts and for testing my own genetics and stuff. That's kind of what's kept the the rollout for my lineup kind of slow is I like to kind of just be able to run everything myself, make sure that it is hitting the marks that I intended to hit before I release it. On that point, going back to something you said earlier, do you feel like the success that the Juicy Cubes had, for example, sales-wise, and maybe hunt-wise as well, came from the success that people had with the Pygasm? I mean, I never released the Pygasm, first of all. The Pygasm has I've kept exclusively to myself. I mean, there's been a few people that have got to try it, you know, like when I've gone to Ego Clash with it and stuff, or just people in Michigan and some of my friends and stuff in other states. But for the most part, like, people had no idea. I mean, they just kind of invested off of me, off of what I was saying and what other people were saying, I guess. I don't know. I mean, it was kind of lucky. And I mean, the results really delivered on it. Uh, I still got people asking for Juicy Cubes all the time. I'm going to be probably redropping it soon. But also, like, on that same note, like, not only did the Juicy Cubes sell out, but, like, basically all my drops have sold out within, like, less than an hour besides... My most recent drop, which is a regular drop, which has been a little bit slower, but it's still been pretty paced. So been pretty thankful for that as well. But the Pygasm work is definitely what sells the quickest for me. It's definitely got a uh, it's got a description that people want before like even getting to try it. But then when people get to try it, that's like really just kind of hook and sinker, you know. It's it's coming to a point to where like I hear like 
a good review like almost every day now, like on Instagram. And like I was saying before, like that definitely kind of ups the inspiration and everything for my work. So I really always appreciate all the kind words that people send me on Instagram and whatnot. Cool. Yeah, that's awesome to hear. Speaking of ADHD, we had a little conversation earlier and you brought it up now as being part of the reasons that you got into cannabis. What do you feel like that brings to you? Because that's not something that I've ever had an opportunity to speak with someone about on the podcast. For me, like cannabis has just kind of been something that lets me sit still and do something that's not like active, focus on like a movie or something. I'm like one of those guys that will like get up and start doing something else if not for the cannabis. So that's definitely been something helpful for me and something that's, it helps me uh, get sleep and stuff because my mind like runs at like a million miles per hour. And then the cannabis just kind of brings it down a little bit. Are you a daily user? Oh yeah, definitely. Like, yeah, I smoke probably like two to three grams of rosin a day. This is maybe a weird question, but a lot of people talk about tolerance breaks. Do you ever take those? I haven't missed a day of dabbing in like over 10 years. You know, I probably should, but like, you know, outside of exercise and like stuff like that, I don't really have many ways to uh, deal with my ADHD unmedicated. So I usually have to use cannabis to fall asleep and to get some downtime ultimately. Cool. Yeah, I can kind of relate. So that's part of why I wanted to talk about it. On a different note, going back to the hash making, when you started making hash, you said you had looked at videos, for example, of Frenchie Cannoli and Bubble Man. And from that, you had gained some of the knowledge. And then you took that knowledge and you went to Colorado. And like you said, you started working on your own projects, which led you to being almost like a toll processor. And you talked about the importance of what that taught you. What would be some advice that you would give, for example, someone who's starting to make hash and some of those processes that might help them be more efficient? Frenchie definitely influenced a lot of my early thoughts about cannabis resin and ways to wash. Yeah, I'm a machine washer. I, I wash with machines. I like believe in the power of vortex. Frenchie always, always push. So, I mean, one thing that I definitely like recommend for first time, like people trying to attempt hash is get your water as cold as possible. The colder you get your water, the better. And the better you prep your material, the better. Like, I think those are probably the, the two areas where weed that's grown good becomes weed that's not going to process as nice. Like, I think that's where it can really get messed up. I always recommend people trim things into trays or bins or something where they can freeze the nugs loosely initially, you know, before bagging them if they're going to bag them and then try to keep them from compressing too much. Don't stack too much. Stand up freezers are really good for that or walk ins something that has shelving, you know, something that has bins. So it works a lot better for preserving that like outer resin that provides a lot of the first wash material and also keeps the chlorophyll down because the compacting of material causes more of the breaking of the material too. Overall, it just helps a lot. And then the coldness of the water too, getting a good pre-chill and then giving it a proper soak time as well is, is definitely key. You want to thaw your nugs out before you start spinning them. It is something that uh, kind of French, Frenchie's thought process played into because he was always of the thought that when you freeze material, it like explodes the plant membrane. So 
I always was of the mind, uh, you know, thaw the material out in as cold a water as possible, you know, and as slow as possible to bring it to uh, a point to where it doesn't have as much of that chlorophyll that's released from the frozen material. If you do those things when you wash, I mean, it's definitely going to protect you to a large degree. I mean, personally, I like to like chill down my water with an excessive amount of ice and then I'll just drain the water away from the ice like through like a bottom tap or something and then that'll be my wash water. And when you do that, you really hardly have to add any ice to your wash. You're basically just sustaining the coldness of the water more than like to me, like the ice doesn't really serve a mechanical purpose. It's just there to sustain the coldness of the water. And that's kind of a thought process I developed from Frenchie's teachings as well. It's the thought process that has definitely led me to success on my hash washing. So at this point, are you not using ice at all in your while you're actually washing the hash or the material? No, I add ice. I, I kind of just add the right amount of ice and I just kind of listen for it to be like the right amount of like the right sound in the machines. It's almost like a the right sizzle to the bacon, as Frenchie used to say. Like you can just tell that when there's too much ice and when there's too little, it's got like a just a gentle sound. And when you hear the ice like start to melt away, you know, just to top it off a little more to maintain the coldness of the water there. I mean, the colder it is though, like you know, in the winter and stuff, like sometimes like you will hardly have to ice down your wash at all. Like with, you know, the more excessive pre-chill like that. Going back to the fresh freezing practices, you mentioned separately to me that a lot of the crosses that you've made have produced not only cultivars that can wash, but also that do well for flour. How do you like to break down your material since these are plants that most likely have more intact nugs and not like sparse is what I'm trying to say here. Generally, like my harvesting process looks like I'll shut off the lights for 24 hours to instill like a darkness period. It's something that I learned from Frenchie too. You know, a lot of the old growers would harvest at night and stuff to keep the resin intact. That's basically the thought process behind that is kind of just to, to get the resin out of the light and get an initial like hardening of the resin. You know, so because when it's in the light, the resin becomes softer and more fragile. So keeping it in the dark and then sometimes I'll turn on like a, you know, like a weak light in there just to have a light to work with while I'm harvesting or whatever. But I don't turn on like the grow lights again after that. So yeah, I chop them down in the dark, hang them upside down and, you know, cut off like a branch at a time or a few branches at a time. And then I'll just clear the leaves and then the nugs off of them into uh trays i usually use like those like aluminum uh like you know like those big like turkey trays like i'll use those and i'll just fill those like pretty much to the brim and a little over even and i'll throw those in my rack freezer and i'll kind of just like fill them in and work down and then as i'm working on the next like batch or whatever the last one will freeze so then i can kind of work from the top dump those into turkey bags as they like harden off that keeps the nugs nice and separate so they're not sticking together when you're loading your wash. Because when the nug sticks together, like I said before, you end up with more like pieces of leaf in the wash and you end up with more general chlorophyll and less resin too. Because when you have materials sticking together, it's because the resin's sticking it together. That's coming off your first wash. So once you chop it down, you chop it down into kind of a smaller size before they go on the trays is what you're saying? Yeah, I separate the nug from the stem 
pretty much to the natural like nugs structure, like no bigger than golf ball size and just load the trays into the freezer. Yeah. Do you break them down any further in size beyond that? Or is that what you're washing? I don't like break down nugs excessively because that creates like more ruptured plant material. I try to just follow the stem, separate the natural nug structure. Sometimes when you're doing that, like, you know, sometimes the bigger nug clusters, like on a cola per se, like it'll be made up of like several sites on the stem that you can separate. So you just follow the stem ultimately. And like, you don't want to cut into the nugs at all. You know, you just separate the sun leaf material and the non-trichome matter. I don't like to snip the tips on my like sugar leaves or anything like that, because again, that's just more ruptured plant material in the wash. I'm curious now how your process has changed from doing your own processing and specifically more so the toll processing to now you're trying to primarily make seed from my understanding. Has your wash process changed from doing it for one purpose to the other? Well, I mean, I'm pretty much playing bozo buckets every day. You know, I'm running five gallons pretty much back to back and my back hates me for it. The five gallons, I don't know. I mean, all washing is tough on your back, but like, I mean, yesterday I like, I did like a dozen or so washes. You know, I lifted the buckets like well over 120 times over my chest for that. You know what I mean? So. When you're washing, you definitely want to have some good back support. I always wear a back brace now. It's kind of definitely mandatory, especially because like the more tired you get too, like you can start to like kind of just wing your back a little bit. So you definitely want to be careful. But yeah, I mean, that's how it looks now. So I don't mind it. It's definitely a labor of love, but very gratifying to kind of just be able to be at the end of the road and read all the phenos that I've been looking at. I don't always wash everything individually, but I always like wash all the stand like there's always ones that like I kind of have my eye on and sometimes there's ones that end up surprising you or whatever at the end and then I'll be like oh I do need to separate this one but generally I just like wash separately all like the main ones I have my eyes on like you know the top like three or four and then I'll just mix the rest together yeah that's pretty much it what are some other qualifications you're looking for in those three or four that you do wash I'm looking for structure. I'm looking for terpene profile, the feel of the resin, like the way the resin feels on the plant. Not necessarily looking for like sandy resin, but I'm looking for tacky resin and definitely just the terps. I mean, like, you know, the terps is probably the number one thing I always look for. You know, even if something seems like it's a little greasy, but it's got those terps, I always, you know, try to isolate it anyway, because sometimes I'm never surprised by the ones that feel tacky, like up front. Those ones almost, you know, they always do good. They don't almost always do. They do always do good. But sometimes like one that like seems greasy, like when you're feeling the resin will come around and surprise you with like a pretty decent wash number. Like I've definitely had that happen more than once. So, I mean, just because something doesn't have the right resin feel in the grow doesn't mean that it's not going to have a viable wash for the terpene that you're looking for. You know what I mean? Because wash is something to me, like I'll settle on a little bit to get really outside the box on the terpene flavor. I mean, I'm not talking like I'm not going to take something that's like below 2% or something, but three, three and a half I might take, you know, with the right terp. It's all just a matter of kind of just balancing the factors together. And at the end of the day too, the jar of rosin that it prevents the jar of resin, you know, or the tray of hash, like 
what's it presenting? Speaking of, you mentioned the sandy resin, which we've heard in the past in the podcast as being one of the textures that trichomes have. You said sometimes you find that those can produce resin that's not very wet. I, if I see a sandy plant, like in my mind, like like if it's actually like it's got that like sand texture like between your fingers, a lot of times it doesn't have the meltiest hash. It doesn't produce six star and oftentimes too, like with the sandier feeling ones, they'll produce a drier rosin as well, like a higher THCA, more crystally kind of rosin, which is something that I've definitely seen pretty prevalently in certain strains, you know what I mean, that um, have been touted for uh, solventless. To me, they're more like keefy than they are hashy. That's like, to me, that's like a, like a keefy like kind of attribute. So speaking of doing all these multiple washes and the selection in the resin and the structure and the aromas, how big are your fresh frozen batches at this point if you're going from plant to plant? I mean, I don't like grow like such a baby amount that I can't get like a decent wash out of a five gallon. So I usually am going for like anywhere between three to like 700 grams. It's just basically what a single plant is giving in a set amount of, of amended soil, essentially, is what I'm going off of. Is that one of the things that factors into your selections? For example, one of them produces X more amount of biomass versus resin but the amount of resin per biomass might differ between the two or three different ones. Yeah, I just go off of like how big is the, cause they're all grown in like the same size soil. They're all given the same period till flip and everything like that when they're compared next to each other. So basically at that rate, you can compare how big the jar of rosin is at the end of the day, you run them all the same way and you can compare like, so maybe this one's 7%. And it has 14 grams of rosin back. The other one's four and a half percent, but you're getting back 25 grams of rosin because of the biomass. Then you look back and you say, how much space or how big did the plant grow? Did it spread out into other plant space? You know, was it, you know, was it an overly like spread plant where the nugs like way disperse or like, you know, then you can determine like what you're getting for the space basically. And uh, that's how you pick it. So at this point, as a hash maker turned seed maker, how are you collecting this resin once you're washing it? Are you separating it? Is it all together? What's your process? I usually run full spec just because I'm not like trying to run a full like a bucket of screens on 300 grams or, you know, even, you know, 200, 250 grams sometimes. So I usually just collect it in full spec and just see what the total quality of the resin is. And by full spec, what bag specifically are you using? Um, I usually use the 25 micron and just, yeah, I usually just collect the 25 micron. So you wash it, for example, in a 220 work bag, you take that water and then you run it through a 25? I put the 220 bag on top of the bucket and then I wash without a work bag, like Frenchy style. I've ran a lot of gardens through 25 micron. And I really think that, you know, there's a lot of people that think that like certain screens are like food grade or whatever. But to me, like certain plants are food grade. I don't know. I'm not like on my best plants. I'm not really seeing like a loss in quality from running at full spec versus, you know, separating the microns. Sometimes I feel like separating the microns and dissecting the product so much is what gives 
sometimes like the less like inferior product or whatever. And I also think too that like the effects and the taste on the full spec is more what I'm looking for for my daily use. I really enjoy smoking a 90 micron per se in rosin. I like, you know, it's a little more sweet in my opinion, but I think the full spectrum has a little bit more of a complete flavor when the top isn't being scraped off too. Like, you know, the, the full spec is never as good. Like when somebody's calling it full spec, but it's not actually full spec because they're taking out all the 90 and all the 120. You know what I mean? Then it's not full spec. Then it's just, it's half spec. But true full spec, um, I mean, I've seen full spec that is five-star hash. You know what I mean? Like solid, you know, you can flag it out with your fingers and put it on a banger. It's more by the plant, in my opinion, than by by the screen. And it's more by the garden than it is by the screen. I think there's, cer- there's certain gardens out there that don't put out a single bag of food grade. You know what I mean? And I've seen it in other people's gardens and... You know, I've seen that in some of my better runs as well, personally. So, To summarize, you're saying that with a combination of the right genetics and the right practices, you feel like anything from the 25 up through, you know, let's say like the 180 or whatever it is that your screen, you're cutting that off. Uh, that resin should all be pretty good. Yeah, because like, I don't know if you've, I mean, I'm talking to the hash makers out there. I mean, I'm sure you guys have washed stuff where like 75 plus is in the 90 and up. So, I mean, in a situation like that and a situation up from that, I mean, there's not really any food grade screens or any food grade resin coming off of that plant. It's, you know, it's all viable for smoking. Like, I don't know who's out here saying like, this isn't good to smoke or something. Like it's, it's a complete product and it's got the complete spectrum of cannabinoids. When you take a 90 micron, you're slicing the cannabinoids and the effects as well. You know, the flavor, you're isolating a sweeter flavor or whatever, but it's a less complete flavor. So this is a subject that comes up often, which is, you know, percentages. We've talked about it roundabout in this conversation. Let's talk about what you just brought up is like almost the viability within the hash percentage. So when you take these full spec pulls, and then I'm assuming you take these to the rosin plates. What are you looking for as not only a maker, but in this case, as someone who is looking to put those genetics out to other people looking to do a similar thing? I mean, on full spec, I usually look for like between 75 to 85% on the press to consider it like a quality full spec pull. You know, definitely more in the 80s is more ideal. Like in the low to mid 80s is, is where you want to be. What are some of the higher numbers you've seen on that spectrum in returns? Full spec or in general? On rosin, on full spec. On rosin, on full spec, the highest I've seen is like 92%, which is pretty dang high, like for 219 through 25. So, I mean, at that, like, what are you going to shake a stick at it and be like, oh, there, the, the 8% in there was food grade? Like, what do you, you know what I mean? But you told me that sometimes those really high yielding ones for example, lack the turf profiles that some of the ones that you're saying you hope, for example, land at least in the 80s do get. When you're talking about that, you're talking about the washes. So something that might be an 8% or a 9% hash wash might have like a kefir resin. But sometimes, you know, you get those eights and nines that don't have a kefir resin and have that greasy resin. They produce six star and they produce large amounts of upper micron yield. Like that's when you really got the ace in the hole. 
that's what you're looking for. You know, when you're hunting seeds and you're looking for an end goal for a washer, I mean, to me, it's like it's seven to nine percent and it's high yielding in upper micron and high yielding in the rosin department on full spec. That's an ace in the hole. You get those attributes a lot of times on like a four to five percent. But when it exceeds that, that's that's the territory you want to be in. So would you say that that's almost like your goal as of now as a seed maker? I mean, I have stuff that does that. I mean, the red pygasm does. It's like a, it's a seven to seven and a half percent a lot of times. And I mean, I think I've even pulled, I think the max I ever pulled on it was like eight and a half percent, but I've been pretty level at around seven, seven and a half percent the last like four or five pulls on it. So I usually just say like 7% of that. I would say like around 70% of it's upper micron because it's one of those strains that like, if you're going to run full spec of it, it, it's definitely a disservice to try to skim off the top of it because that's like pretty much the whole thing. <laughs> How cool is it for you to hear back feedback from these projects, from people that are out there cultivating and processing it? It's really cool. I mean, even like the other day, I got a guy that was hitting me up about the red smoothie, which is a straw nana red pygasm cross that I, I bred specifically to be like a hash plant. And this guy was like, this is some amazing flower. He was like, the head's strong. It's got a super fruity flavor, like good shape to the nugs. So I was pretty stoked to hear that one personally, just because I'm not trying to breed for flower at all. Like I hardly dry any flower. Like if I dry some flower, it's usually off of like one of my special keepers, just because like some of my friends that can't handle dabs are going to be around or something like that. Keep it as a party favor in the back drawer kind of thing. But you do dry some at some points. I mean, I dry a shitload of it with seeds in it. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, I hang all kinds <laughs> of it. I mean, if I dry flour, I just, A, like, I'm not going to want to get through all that dry trimming. And then B, like, I'm not going to smoke it. And it's probably going to, like, go stale before I do anything with it. I don't know. I'm not pushing pounds of flour or something, you know? <laughs> well, cool, dude. I think this would be a good opportunity for a second smoke break. You done? Yeah, I'm done. All right, cool. I want to take a moment to give a shout out to everyone who makes up our community on Patreon for allowing us to produce episode 51 with Andrew of Turp Fountain Genetics and to give a special shout out to some of our top contributors, including Garland in DC, Nick the Intern, the crew at Heritage Hashco Mendocino, Macro Melts in SoCal, Kevin of Lifted Indina, Melt Walkie J, Turp Wizard, David of Rosin Evolution, Rezon Reserve, Solventless AF, the Chile Relleno Burrito, the Homie Big C, and the Real Cannabis Chris. We appreciate every single one of you. Now back to the episode. So you mentioned that you started cultivating once you got to Denver in around 2016. Tell us how you started and if your methodology is similar now. My methodology has completely transformed. That transformation did take place like during those days. I started out just kind of plug and play with some veg bloom, like just like a two part, you know, you get the veg fucking powder and the bloom powder and CalMag basically and some pH up and down. And it's pretty simple, you know, grown in cocoa, plants looked good and the resin was all right. But like when I was getting some of the exposure to some of the other materials and some of my buddies were like growing with like amended soils, you know, more of like an organic approach. The yields on those were like 
far above what I was seeing on the veg bloom diet. So I started playing with amended soil and stuff at that point. The the whole like organic farming and you know amended soil thing and everything is you know a way different approach than like the veg bloom. So uh, that was something that took some getting used to. You know, like definitely some more scant plant yields and stuff at first. But after a while, once you like kind of get the the premise of it, like you need more root space. Like is one of the main big takeaways from like living soil systems that like I didn't understand like maybe necessarily going into it um once i figured that out and you know i started getting more tapped into knf actually uh macho melts he was the michael he was the one who uh turned me on to knf just chatting with him on instagram he sent me over the uh the pdf from there like it kind of like aligned with like my culinary interest and stuff because the process of making your own nutrients and the the process of procuring IMO and everything definitely kind of like hit true with, you know, those characteristics in me. So I, I was really drawn to it. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's pretty much been that since, ever since, you know, I've, I've been doing KNF additives to uh, amended living soil primarily. That's had its challenges too with like the whole breeding thing, because setting up beds is not really the most practical when you're trying to kind of sort through a bunch of shit and like re-veg things and I don't know, all the stuff that comes with the breeding territory. So, I mean, that's, that's been a little bit of a learning curve, but it, it, I think it's, it's, a, it's a good thing because it helps the plants like really express their true genetic traits. Being able to set it in like, you know, a set level of amended soil where, you know, you can see some of the phenos getting hungry, you know, mid-flower and you can see like kind of the natural course of the way the plant's finishing. And I think that's like, that's kind of a key prospect of my uh, selection process as well just how well things do in a in a minimal setup and under stresses and you know less ideal conditions i purposely i'm a little bit neglectful with my tester plants when it comes to like their overall care besides just like scoping them over like i kind of i don't really strip them down much because i want to see like if any herm flowers pop out you know on an untrimmed plant you know on the lowers and whatnot so i usually just leave them be when i'm running testers and you know keep an eye on everything and see how the stability works out and see how the traits really shine through that when you bring up stability and you brought up the word hermaphrodite a little bit ago what do you mean by that and do they correlate to each other stability i mean it can mean a lot of things i mean stability could mean something that uh doesn't have like proper photo sensitivity, like triggers weird. I mean, that could be stability, but stability could also mean like herms. And like oftentimes when people are talking about stability, they're talking about herms. Herms are just, I mean, it's something we have to deal with in modern genetics and even like old genetics too. I mean, I've popped plenty of really old seed packs that even have had herms in it, you know? So it's not like a new problem, but it's it's a cannabis problem. It's something that Certain cannabis will, plants will want to do to preserve their legacy, so to speak, you know, to continue on, you know, their weeds. So they want to do whatever they can to create seeds, you know. So you have to breed and select stable phenotypes, you know, to keep your lines as um, proper as possible. And you have to test the phenotypes for, you know, any kind of triggers, you know, like light leaks, you know, improper lighting schedules, stuff like that that can trigger herms. 
you know, I try to figure out what sensitivities plants have. So going forward, I can know what to expect in the offspring. So basically, it's when a female plant exhibits these traits of like possibly making seed or something to, like you're saying, preserve itself. Yeah, like there's a few different kinds of herms. I classify them like situational herms and like genetic herms. A situational herm will be like, you know, maybe a single sack on the side of the plant that's facing the door that has a little bit of light leak. That could be a situational herm. Whereas like a genetic herm will have fucking nanas coming all about the plant, like, you know, from the bottom up. Certain plants, like you can like pick the nanas off, you know, they'll be fine. Like going forward, they won't throw anything again. But there's stuff too that's like genetic herms that they persist and they, you know, they keep throwing up, which happens. But it's like, I definitely try to steer clear of any kind of herms in my gear and I test them for herms. You said that funny enough, sometimes you found that in your feminized lines, you found less of these traits than people were to expect. Uh, for example, in comparison to regular seed lines, which you also produce. Yeah, like when I first made like my first berry fizz cross with that first pygasm male I picked out, it was like full of herms. But then I remade it with the feminized version and the herm population was cut down to like 10% or less. The two testers I sent the seeds out didn't report any herms. And then when I had mine that I pushed with light leak and stuff, I just had one. So I was pretty satisfied with that versus the outcome of the first crop, which I wasn't comfortable releasing at all. Speaking of feminized seeds and going back to the idea of pollen, does pollen have a sex? Is there a female and male pollen? Yeah, definitely. Feminized pollen is it's definitely different than male pollen. It's, it produces like so. And then there's also herm pollen. So feminized pollen is different than herm pollen because herm pollen is produced by a plant that is both prone to herm and then is usually stress-induced to create the sacs, whereas a feminized pollen is created using silver thiosulfate with STS, and it's a chemical process that creates a pollen that is uniquely feminized. So you apply the STS to a female plant and that plant then produces seed that is feminized? Exactly. Yep. You pr it produces, it turns into basically like when you have a successful reversal, it basically looks like a stacked ass male plant. It's got like big clusters of male sacs and no pistols showing. It's, it's got a different look to it than a standard male. It's like a little more dense in the clusters. They're a little bit more harder to deal with, and the pollen's a little bit harder to deal with, too. It's not quite as potent as, like, regular pollen, so it takes a little bit more to get the job done, in my experience. Do some genetics, for example, the female in this case, take pollen better than others? Yeah, there's definitely plants that cross well, like, you know, take the seed well, and there's plants that are harder to take the seed. and you know, require more pollen contact and, you know, heavier pollinations. Um, and then some will, you can get by with just the light pollination and get the whole thing hit. And so for someone who's kind of new to the space, what is the purpose of feminizes once you actually are able to produce them? The purpose of feminized seeds are basically to cross a trait from a female into a genetic population and create all female seeds. 
for people that have like a dedicated space to where they're they're going to be hurt if they got to chop out a male plant out of like a 40 gallon pot or something like that, you know, like if they're outside or like, you know, they got to, they don't have any cuts and they need to, you know, have something viable to start with. So maybe this is a weird question, but what are some of the knocks out there on feminized lines, if there are any? Well, the knocks are is that, you know, there can be more herms in feminized seeds. I don't necessarily think, oh, and also people say that there's a narrower range of profile on them too. That's another thing people say, but I'll start with the herm part. People say uh, that there can be herms in feminized seeds and they're sure there can be, but it's largely based on like the genetics, you know, like stuff with sour in it, stuff with strawnana in it sometimes can be a little sensitive stuff with like chems. Some of the old OGs even are very uh, herm prone and herm sensitive. So, I mean, there's a lot of popular gear that everybody likes to smoke on that's herm sensitive. Even, you know, some of the like, you know, the rainbow belt, some of the uh, batches of that even had some herms and it's very popular. You know, it doesn't take away, you know, if there is some herms, I don't think it necessarily takes away as long as there's viable winners still in the packs as well. And the herms are kept to a, a minimal population. Sometimes you have to uh, tread that water a little bit to get the profiles from some of those things that you're looking for. And sometimes they require a little bit of reworking. Sometimes you got to try different males. Sometimes you got to try different reversals to it or whatever to get some of those profiles to play out in a more stable platform. Cool. Yeah, that makes sense. So just to clarify, a reversal is when you do apply the feminized pollen to a female. Yeah, a reversal is a female plant that produces feminized pollen. So it's it's had the STS or colloidal silver applied to it, and uh, it has feminized pollen sacs. And so this may be a different area, but what is the difference between that and a back cross then? So a back cross is when you take a strain and you cross it to something to get a, a trait from another strain, and then you bring it back to the original strain to reinforce those traits back to it. Okay, cool. Yeah, so very different things. Do you ever use that technique with your own breeding? Yeah, I got I got back crosses of, of the red pygasm. I got back crosses of the pygasm. I got back crosses of FPOG. Got back crosses of FPOZ. It's a, I like back crosses. They're fun to play with. Sometimes certain back crosses, you can lose some stability with a back cross. And that's why maybe you're thinking of in like a similar category as feminized seed. But again, just like the feminized seed, it just really depends on the cross. It's not necessarily the back cross factor that produces that quality. Do you see at this point making seed, for example, more of like a artistry thing or more of a science type based thing or is it kind of a, a combination of these things for you it's kind of a mix of both i mean I, you know i go with my gut for most stuff i try to learn the ingredients and just go with my gut like i do when i'm cooking and that's honestly led me to a lot of my best stuff part of what i found interesting when you told me about when you first started making seeds more intentionally let's call it is that at first you realize wow like this is a cool project, way exceeded what I expected, like you said earlier. But at the same time, your first inclination was to hold the genetics. And then 
over time, or it seems to be like you've gone through this process of now being willing to share it and not only willing to, but getting a kind of joy out of doing so. I think that just kind of falls back to like my passion for like, you know, the customer service aspect of culinary, like, you know, being able to deliver an experience to somebody, you know, being able to just see the joy and the happiness when somebody has that experience or attains something. So a question that arises for me is if you're using, for example, your living soil setup, and that's part of how you're doing your selection process. What are you seeing in other people's garden who I'm assuming it's like an array of different practices with your genetics? Are they performing similar? Are they giving people different things? Obviously, they're their own unique expressions of the genetics, but I'm curious overall what you're seeing. Yeah, that's a good question. I've actually been pretty impressed with the continuity of of how everything's done in other people's gardens. It's honest. I was a little concerned, like, you know, with my initial drops on like how good like they'd be in, you know, like synthetic gardens and, you know, stuff like that. Cause I think the living soil naturally kind of buffs my yields a little bit, but, uh, people have been blown away by, by the profiles and the yields they've been finding too. So I've been really satisfied with that. Now you told me that you like to pop one pack of your own seeds basically, or equivalent to and be able to find something within that population before really putting those seeds out. Why is that? I just think that's the like best way I can try to like guarantee a result. I mean, there's really no true way to guarantee a result with seeds, but I feel if I at least, you know, put myself in the position of the customer and see how the outcome is. And if I find, you know, a star menu item or something that I would want to add to my rosin menu, and I think that it would be something worthwhile for other people as well. So, yeah, that's interesting because that's something we were talking about on one of the smoke breaks is how I feel like even this idea of how many quote unquote winners you're able to find within a pack has changed and is changing over time. And for example, you're saying that like you want people to be able to buy one pack of seeds and find something that's you know viable to them in some sense or that they're excited about. But you know, maybe five years ago, I think having the ambitions of finding a washer in a pack of 10 seeds was probably less viable than it is now. So that in itself is interesting to me how that's changing. Yeah, I think that's just the development of the market. It's it's the demand rises as people get savvy to this stuff, you know, and like to compete in a, you know, in a market, you got to be able to deliver a product and sustain customers you know if you, if you can't sustain customers it's already such a niche scene like you know it's like you're selling to a fraction of the population that smokes weed and then you're selling to an you know fractionalized again to people who grow it and you know fractionalized again to people who are probably more seeking out ice water stuff but not always but definitely in this realm you know what i mean people that are savvy to this kind of stuff are the ones that are hearing about it you know it's a narrow scope you can't be pissing in your own swimming pool, you know, you get, you want to keep it nice and clean, you know, your reputation's everything in this game, you know, and if you put out a bunch of duds, you put out one dud pack and that could be somebody's first experience with your, with your gear. And then that would turn that person away forever, you know, whereas if it was a good pack, you could create a lifetime customer, you know, and that's definitely the thought process that I've built my business on. And that's why it's so important 
for me to experience things from the customer standpoint before I release a product. So on that note, you mentioned earlier something about testers. Do you have people that, for example, you share your genetics with to kind of do maybe some initial runs outside of yourself before putting them on the market? Yep. Usually there's like one to two minimum, like other people that I do like outside my pack run of things. So just to kind of get like some reaffirmation and some different environments. Yeah, I got some I got some really good testers at this point. I've I've got a few people that are are pretty vetted now and are giving me really consistent results. Yeah, I'm pretty thankful for that, really. It's it's awesome when people deliver on uh what they say they're gonna do. You know, I don't know much about these things, but I've heard that that is one of the difficult parts about people doing testing is a lot of times you don't actually get them to grow it out or get the data or whatever that part is as the person seeking it. You know, it takes a while, you know, I'd say four to five months turnaround when you pop a seed to the end of the, you know, the pheno hunt to where you're tasting the flavors and you have end results. So, I mean, that's a pretty big commitment, you know, for something that you have no idea on how it's going to turn out. And that's why I try to, you know, again, experience my products and be, you know, be able to fill in some of that information for people and answer their questions. So going back to the point of people finding things that they like within different mediums and correlating that to the point when you talked about having a friend back in Colorado who was growing inorganics, which made you change to the soil. How much do you feel the medium has to do with the quality and beyond the quality, also the viability of the resin in the context that we talked about it earlier? I think that uh, if you've ever heard the term, you are what you eat. I mean, the same thing goes for plants. If you're feeding it a bunch of synthetic stuff that smells like a grow store or a hydro store, like like sometimes I'll pick up that kind of terp like in people's product as well. You know what I mean? It's There's a discernible level in some of this stuff. And also just texturally, I mean, people that want wet rosin, the the living soil and organic systems favor that. It's some of these more synthetic systems yield more dry rosin, you know, more plant mass for sure. But also like, yeah, sometimes the product can be a little bit on the drier side as well. I mean, I've definitely seen, you know, people that are, you know, on more synthetic formulas that have good product, but I just feel in general that the living soil is the way and it's a lot easier to achieve that level of product from. Have you had anybody run your gear under the sun, whether it's greenhouse or full term at this point? Yeah, I have. My buddy, uh, Six Star Selections out in uh, California, runs my gear outside. Hidden Forest has been running some of my gear outside on the East Coast. And then there's also some guys that have been growing some stuff outside in Michigan as well, you know, in greenhouses and in uh, just open sun. So, yeah, there's been some pretty good results with the gear outside, especially off the red pygasm stuff. I haven't seen any of FPOZ regular stuff ran outside yet, but I've seen a lot of the red pygasm stuff. There's definitely some nice early finishers out of some of the packs, especially the uh, the berry fizz, the red smoothie, and uh, the watermelon or the smackles has some, uh, they both have some early triggering, uh, a little bit faster finishing outside. So people have done well with some of those. Do you think that that's a characteristic that you would ever look to read for down the line, for example? Yeah, for sure. I mean, as it stands right now, it's more of a phenotype characteristic that like you'd have to search out amongst the pack. 
But uh, there's definitely, you know, a growing market for, you know, stuff that finishes, you know, in 45 to 50 days. And it's definitely out there. I come across it in the uh, the Pygasm gear pretty often. There's a Pygasm punch recently or that I'm going to have coming out this summer that I found like a 45 day finisher on that was, you know, fully flush with color and like, you know, nice plump nugs, all the resin was clouded out and like some amber showing on the main mass. Like it was, you know, it was ripe. If I waited another 10 days, it would have been too ripe, kind of ripe. So it was like, that's definitely a trait that, that I'm, I got my scope set on for some projects for the next year or two. Speaking of projects, you brought up six star selections. I know you guys have been working on something for a few years now. As you mentioned, he does lemon terps, which they're relatively pretty uncommon for washers or as like a generality. And then it seems like you're kind of going down this more like berry red synthetic line. So what are you guys looking to do together? We got a few different things going on because he's more of an outdoor farmer. So one of the things we got going is we're doing a uh, a feminized lineup off of one of the lemon crosses that we made together. The lemon dozy, we call it with a Z. It's the lemon dozy cross with Z cube. It was kind of like a shucking project. We did to preserve his lemon winner on the lemon dozy, which had a really prolific lemon cleaner that washed well. We're doing like a feminized lineup off of that one. And then we also got like some regulars that we're doing. In that project, you're saying that the Z-Cube mail came from you? Yeah, I had a Z-Cube mail that I pulled out of that pack when I ran that original Z-Cube. And I was holding on to it forever and I was shucking it out. And he was like, yo, let me get some of the pollen. So I sent him some of the pollen to hit with some of his lemon gears more specifically. And uh, yeah, that was one of the results from it. And it came out super, super good. It was like a super like lemon cleaner, like Skittles. Just really good balance of terps, you know, good good color to it too, you know, and good yield as well. So we're doing a feminized off of that. And then we got some regular seeds coming out with the FPOZ and uh, some of the lemon stuff. And then we also got a feminized cross with some of the lemon stuff and the pygasm. So, we'll, you know, we're trying to shoot for some like lemon berry stuff. We have like a few different candidates we're trying out to try to achieve that. So that's kind of where the project stands right now. Cool. You mentioned the FPOZ a few times. That's the Fruity Pebbles OG and, and cross to what? It's Fruity Pebble OG cross the Z cube. That's like the regular lineup I've been working on. My vision with that was to like take like the serial aspects of the FPOG and sharpen it out with the Skittles. That's exactly basically what happened. The uh, the FPOZ has like um, a range of like really sweet gas and cereal. Some Skittles, Finos, but it's more of like a, it's definitely more of like an accentuated, like wet cereal on the uh, Fino selection I went with from the F1. I actually just got done making it into F2 and uh, washing out the F2s and stuff. And the F2s are like super prolific, super like wet cereal, but like almost like a kerosene, like sweet gas, just really powerful kind of gas element to the background. So I'm pretty stoked on that. Yeah, that sounds nice. So I'm going to have to ask, can you explain what an, what an F2 is? An F2 is two F1 generations, regular seeds crossed together to basically to cement in the winning traits from the first generation and steer um, the traits of the plant into a more solidified direction. 
Okay, cool. Thanks. So kind of full circle now, going back to pollen. You mentioned right now sending some pollen. You mentioned at the very beginning of the podcast that there's certain ways to care for pollen, store pollen, and even ways to take it from the plant. So can you give people some advice as to how to do that if people are looking to collect pollen to even you know start toying around with genetics themselves? One of the things I like to do is I like to use like a trim bin and I usually like get like a new one or like, you know, one that's just specifically used for pollen and was cleaned like a while ago. So, you know, there's not any residual moisture on it. And then just I like to like line the bottom of the trim tray with foil, like aluminum foil, keep it nice and flat and then uh, get the plants like usually I, I dry the pot just a tiny bit and then I chop down the branches and work them over the trim bin. You're going to want to do that in an area that's got air filtration and, uh, you know, contain that because when you do that, it's definitely like pollen goes freaking everywhere. So it's it's something that you definitely need to use some caution when doing and also respiratory caution as well, because it's it'll definitely light your sinuses on fire. It's pretty rough on the sinuses for sure. And then storage wise? First, cure out the pollen for about a week, you know, let it dry out. And then I'll jar it up and I usually just jar it up with like a little bit of rice for immediate use. I don't chill it down or anything, but if I'm going to store it um, and I'll store it up to like three, four months, usually like max. I mean, you can store stuff longer than that, but the viability starts to go down. Like if you want like guaranteed viability, you need to use it pretty fresh. You know, it's got a shelf life on it. So yeah, you don't want to store it wet. Like you you want to kind of look for like loose pollen granules, not you don't want it to clump up. Like if it's clumping up, that's pollen that's like not viable. Like the clumped up stuff isn't good. You know, unless it's just clumped up from static and it comes back apart, that that, that will happen too because it is statically charged. And by fresh, you mean how long approximately? In regards to uh, like putting it away, like, like I said, like about a week dry time. You know, and then I like to dump it in with a little bit of rice. Uh, I meant actually for like usage or putting or using. Is that what you meant? Oh, it's viable immediately. It's a viable when it's fresh. You just cure it out a little bit for storage, just so it's not the pollen's not like wet or like because if, if there's any kind of moisture in the pollen, the viability goes down. You know what I mean? So I like see. getting clear on the vi- on the pollen, like uh puts the viability up for storage. And then once it's in storage, how long is it fresh or viable for to use? Is it almost like an indefinite thing? I mean, I've used stuff like that's over a year old that I've had like, you know, sealed up good and vacuum sealed in the freezer. So, I mean, it can definitely stay good for a while. You know, I kind of, I got some stuff in the freezer and I got some stuff in the fridge and I got some stuff room temperature because... You know, it takes a long time to do all these projects. And I've kind of just been trying to experiment with the best ways to to use and store pollen. It's definitely kind of an art form in a way. It can be a little finicky. And then application-wise, once you take that pollen and you want to apply it to the female plant, in this case, how are you doing that? I usually brush it on. I usually use like a small paintbrush and just turn off all the fans in the room. Or, I mean, I guess if you don't have anything to, you're not trying to like, if you don't have to worry about spreading it elsewhere or whatever, you can just run the fans and let it loose or whatever you want to do. The best way to make seeds is with a live plant. Just running the live plant with the with the mother stock for seed. That's like, if you can do that, that's the way to do it. But I mean, if you have to store pollen, that's like, 
that's a fallback measure, in my opinion. It's better to always have fresh pollen. So you're saying, in your opinion, the best way to actually make seed is to have the live male plant in the room with all the females and just let it do its thing. Yeah, exactly. Storing pollen is a backup measure. And I always store pollen when I make pollen as a backup measure, but I don't uh, rely on that. You know, it's a backup measure. Okay, cool. And similar to what we talked about earlier, how some of the plants would take the pollen better than others, I'm assuming some genetics produce more seeds than others. Yep. They all yield different, just like with hash and with the flower yield and everything else. They all, uh, yeah, they all yield the seed a little different. For me, I don't know, maybe for other people it, that reflects in the price, but I always just keep the price the same. The seed yield doesn't go into anything like that. On the lower spectrum, on a small plant, how many seeds should you expect? I mean, I don't know. That's like kind of like a tough question. Kind of like a how many like pins are in the jar kind of question. I mean, anywhere from like hundreds to thousands, you know, or dozens even, you know, if it was like a super light pollination and, you know, a harder plant to take, like anywhere in between just depends on the circumstance, the pollen exposure, all of it, the pollen viability or whatever the circumstance may be. And also just the genetics, like we are saying, just certain plants are, the certain plants like need a, they need the pollen donor standing directly over them, just dumping pollen on them. You know, other ones like will take the brush well. It's a it's a learning experience. I mean, it's tough to go into like, you know, if you're trying to make money on like breeding to go into like a situation, and try to have everything turned out as as planned, because in nature, things don't always go as planned. When you're playing with genetics, it's like any probability of things can happen. I mean, almost like with people, you know what I mean? When you have a kid, anything could happen. You know, you know, it's going to have certain traits from you guys, but it's like anything could happen. And like, that's the same thing with plants, you know, any, there's so many possibilities and outcomes. And like, that's, what's so exciting about it. It's like an, it's like an unlimited, like a uh, lottery, so to speak, you know, being able to keep popping seeds and keep trying, man, keep rolling the dice, you know, and then you, when you hit the jackpot, it's, it's sweet. Do you feel like at some point there's going to be too much of a bottleneck with all these modern hybridizations? Or is part of the way to go a different route is these outliers that we talked about earlier? I don't think like genetics are necessarily being bottlenecked. I think the only thing that can be bottlenecked are people's thought processes. You know what I mean? Because, I mean, there's thousands of strains in existence. And how many, uh, you can't, I couldn't even tell you how many profiles, you know, probably even more than that. But it's like, I don't know. It's because, you know, you, know, you got to think of every cross there is, how many profiles are coming off of that cross? You know, how many gems are out there uncovered, you know, to be popped and discovered, you know? So it's, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely very intriguing for me. It's, it's definitely what, uh, like one of my favorite things in cannabis and like one of the things that like, keeps me going, keeps me charged is like those unlimited possibilities and, you know, seeking the next new thing or, you know, like I said before, a new thing to, to me, because it's such a wide world of cannabis. Like, it's almost hard to say, like, you know, is this a new profile or is it a rediscovered profile or is it, you know, is there somebody else out there with something similar? You just never know, but you do something that's special to you and something that sits well in your heart, then you can't go wrong, you know? It's a very gratifying uh, journey even to just make some seeds for yourself. 
you know what I mean? Just, you know, maybe not even to sell or whatever. You don't have to make a business out of it if you don't want to. But it's like, it's a very gratifying aspect of the growing and plant journey to experience. Yeah, that's cool, man. Well, I'm still down to chat if you are. So are you down to take another smoke break and then we can come back and wrap this up? Yeah, let's, yeah, we'll do one more and then we'll wrap it up. Very cool. Shout out to our homies and sponsors, Hashhead Outfitters, who you can visit on their website at hashheadoutfitters.com or on Instagram at hashheadoutfitters, where you'll find small batch luxury loungewear for hash lovers. It's made of incredibly comfortable yet responsibly sourced 100% cotton, which I love the feel of. They currently have a full line of gear from their debut hasher design in a range of beautiful colorways, including sweatpants, hoodies, shorts, and they also recently dropped a stylish, low profile hat. So if you or someone you know loves hash and loves being comfortable, then head over to Instagram at hashheadoutfitters to their website, hashheadoutfitters.com and select shops around the country and grab the gear that caters to hash lovers lifestyle and keeps you extra cozy with that dab. I appreciate you listening. Now back to the episode. So let's start this out with something that I find interesting and a little bit of a spicy topic is the renaming of seeds. You made a post the other day. It mirrors other people's sentiment saying that you can do whatever you want when you buy a pack of seeds. However, if you rename the genetics on purpose to deceive, that's a little different than just making genetic lines from that. Can you expand upon that thought? I just think that it's like, you know, a little bit like just kind of like erasing like the work of the breeder. Like if you're not have any link to them, like I don't expect people to tag the breeder, you know, to anything, but being able to have the strain name on there allows the consumer to be able to trace back the genetic cross, you know, find information about what they like and uh, source it back to the the seed maker. You know what I mean? So they can get some for themselves or whatever, you know, especially just because like, I don't know. It's just something I've always believed in. Even before I made seeds and stuff, I just always thought it was a little seedy when people had renamed things just to kind of elevate their position and, uh, you know, make it seem like they got something that nobody else has when in reality it's, it's a pack of seeds you can go out and buy. So on that note, and we talked about it a little bit through this interview, but specifically, what goes into you creating a genetic line before it goes out as a pack of seeds that's like a turf on genetics release. First, I got a foot, I hunt, I don't take in any cuts. So everything I work has been selected from packs of seeds. So I use those to make an original cross. And then I have to hunt that original cross. It might be a dud, it might work out, it might be great, you know, like anything could happen. So that has to pass. And then I got to then go on to cross it to some other stuff that I hunted out, test that and wash it and make sure it's good. And then that would be what would be ready for release. What are some of the current lines that you're working through or working on that you're excited about? I got a lot of different stuff that I'm working on. I'm, I mean, right now I'm really excited about the FPOZ F2 lineup. The FPOZ F1 lineup still kind of rolling out. I've been just, I got a bunch of crosses made with it and I've just been kind of testing them out as I can and just kind of rolling them out at that pace. 
but yeah, I'm, I'm working ahead on like a lot of stuff. So it's, it's like, I'm always trying to play catch up and like, you know, testing things out and whatnot. But I also got like a lot of new pygasm work, you know, more new red pygasm crosses. I got pygasm regular stuff that I'm working on too. I don't know if I'm going to release it or what I'm going to do with it yet, or, you know, what's going to become of it. I'm a little protective of the pygasm still, but I definitely do want, I definitely plan to like, you know, drop some cuts of it or do something with it eventually as far as that goes. Yeah, there's a lot in the works. It's really hard to to say where to start. I mean, those two lineups are my main focus right now. And I got all kinds of different profiles and females that I'm playing with with those two lineups. But that's basically it right now. I don't think that I'll have time to start any new lineups besides the FPOZ or the Pygasm stuff until next year, unfortunately. But I'm in the process of kind of expanding my breeding capabilities. Should be fruitful for the coming years. Saying that in a way you're looking to almost be able to scale up not only the amount of seeds that you're making, but the, the amount of projects that you're working through at one time. Yeah, definitely. As things are uh, smoothing out and, uh, I'm actually in the process of a, a move across the state right now, too. So I'm kind of half operational, so to speak. So once all that's over with, yeah, things are definitely going to be ticking up in, in far as the amount of testers I'm able to get through myself and uh, hopefully yield some good results to release to the public. This is usually something that we talk about in regards to hash or cultivation, but do you find that scaling up seed making will take away in any way or is it not relevant in the same sense of scaling up cultivation or making hash like can you keep quality high by scaling up and still making most of the decisions if not all the decisions yourself well i'm not talking about that kind of scale up i'm talking about a scale up that's still under belt you know like i'm not trying to bite off more than i can chew or lose the focus of my work, so to speak. Fair. Do you think that it's an achievable thing for someone else? Yeah, I'm not the only one that can do this stuff. You know what I mean? If, if, if somebody's got a passion for the plant and, you know, a true desire for quality and their heart's in the right place, I think they can make quality crosses. There's just, I mean, there's growers that have the feel for the plant and then there's growers that just don't. Going back to the original Pygasm being one of your first intentional creations that exceeded expectations, do you feel that would have been the case if you didn't have great building blocks to begin with? No, definitely. Props to all the breeders, you know, third gen, Canarado, Bloom, you know, everybody that's contributed to my work, you know, I got big love for and really thankful for the the work that they've put in with the plant. And I'm just trying to take it in some different directions and do some different stuff with it than them and more honor their work. You know, I'm not trying to put a leg on it or, you know, anything like that. I'm just trying to contribute to the gene pool in a positive way and do what I love in the process. Yeah, I think that's cool, man. Is there a certain amount of genetics that you look to put out per year going forward, talking about, you know, scaling it up, obviously, like you said, keeping it, to something that is manageable for you? I've just been kind of trying to study like the impact, you know, set numbers of packs have on the market because you sell X amount of seeds and X amount of people pop those seeds. And essentially, I just want to see a uh, 
a response in the market. I want to see people growing the flavors and enjoying them, you know. So that's kind of been what's been helping me gauge how many seeds I want to drop to keep it limited and special for the people who invest in the seeds, but also, uh, you know, give people a fair opportunity to try to get a hold of it too. Cause some of like, I mean, I can't tell you how many like people, like I, like my first drop, the juicy cubes, I mean, and the red smoothie, like Rocky got a fair number of packs and they sold out way faster than either of us expected. And like, there was like a lot of like cranky people in the DM. You know, they were like, those sold out in three minutes. What'd you drop? Like 10 packs? And it was like, no, but yeah, it was, it was exceeding. Like, and, you know, I'm really thankful for that. Like I said, you know, before, and uh, I really can't say it enough. Like, I really appreciate all my supporters and everybody who invests in the vision, so to speak. Just really, really appreciate you guys. Thank you. Well, Andrew, I appreciate you hanging out with me this long, man. I'll start winding it down. Is there a terp that, you want to make that you envision that you haven't made yet. And it's just something that you hope to do at some point. Well, I can't share too much in my blueprint here. I got some shit up my sleeve. There's some, I got some new shit on the horizon, but time will tell. That's what I'll say about that. Cool. On that note, are there any collabs that you're excited about moving forward? I mean, the six star stuff we talked about, I got some going with Rocky too. We got like some super skittly stuff that we've been working on. He has like a uh, a Skittles cross to his Hitman, which has kind of been like a preservation project he's been working on of like a rare uh, DNA OG that he's like really passionate about. It crosses really cool. So yeah, that's that's one thing that's on the horizon for sure. It's definitely something to keep out, especially for the the, the flower folks and people that are trying to get something extremely like skiddly and something that's got some of that, you know, good cush background and, you know, funk, clean gas, you know, it's got it all, but it's definitely packed with that Skittles. So that's something both him and I are pretty excited about. I don't know when exactly we're rolling that out yet, but I would imagine it'll probably be sometime this summer. Cool. And speaking of one of the events you guys are going to be doing together, shout out to Groovy Gravy. You guys are going to be at the Secret Stash. So did you want to plug that? Yeah, um, I'm going to bring pretty much my whole lineup. I have the Juicy Cubes, which I haven't released since the three-minute sellout. And I'll have the Red Smoothie again and uh, the Berry Fizz. And um, I'm going to be releasing some new ones, too. I'm going to release the Red Pebbles, and I'm going to be giving away a uh, Pygasm Punch freebie as well, which is a brand new one. So, yeah, I'm pretty stoked about it. I haven't been out to Denver since 2019, so I got a lot of friends to catch up with and it's going to be a great time in regards to clones is that something that you're looking to do in the future yeah it's something that uh that uh, rocky's definitely been telling me to get on so definitely at some point for sure i'd say in the future it's definitely a possibility if you had to name the top three most influential cannabis genetics brands for you who would those be I'd probably say Bloom, Third Gen, Duke Diamond, and uh, there's a lot of good breeders. You told me that you used to buy a lot more seeds than you do now. Why is that? I just got a lot of my own gear to work through. And like other people's packs are kind of just more background projects at this point. Like I really want to like try to work my lines forward and work off the building blocks that I'm starting as well. 
but I also want to like, you know, keep my feelers out for new shit. So it's, it's a balance, you know? I can understand that. If you had to name three people that have been most influential to you when it comes to the hash making, who would those be? Probably Frenchie and Bubble Man and uh, my buddy's uncle that uh, helped us wash and stuff back in, in the Midwest when we were kids. Did he already know a little bit about the process? Yeah, he'd messed with it a few times, but it was, I mean, it was like some old school tech, you know what I mean? Definitely old school, but it had an impact on me at the time. You know what I mean? It was what got my foot in the door. Cool. You called yourself a flavor maker. What does that mean to you? Just means that I'm just trying to chase something new, you know, something that is impactful to people and something that is uh, impactful to me. Final question. If you could hear from someone on the podcast who hasn't been on, who would it be? I don't know. I wish I could hear Frenchie rant off again, but if somebody alive, it's like, I don't know. You've covered a lot of bases. <laughs> you've covered them. I don't know. Has, have you had Bloom yet? Harry Palms has not been on you. Well, I guess that's who I'd want to hear from then. Cool. Yeah, you and a lot of other people, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, people are definitely interested in folks that are working with the genetics in the solventless sector specifically, because obviously that's the people that listen to this podcast. But yeah, outside of that, I think he would be an interesting person to talk to. Uh, like you mentioned, he definitely has a big influence on the solventless scene in regards to genetics. So we'll see if we can make that happen. Yeah, definitely. I'll try to pass something down the pipeline through Rocky. <laughs> well, cool, man. Again, Andrew, I really enjoyed speaking to you and hanging out. I appreciate your time. You can follow him on Instagram at Turf Mountain Genetics. You can also find his genetics at RockyMountainHigh719.org. Is there anything else that you'd like to say before we sign off? Nope, just thanks again to you and really appreciate it. I really do. Yeah, likewise, man. And I appreciate anybody who kept up with us this long and we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to The Hashish Inn. If you like the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. Until next time.